Hello, it's Wednesday, September the 13th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here in the nation's capital, Peter Berkowitz. He's the Tad and Diane Toby Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, where he studies and writes about constitutional government, liberal education, and Middle East politics. He's also the 2017 winner of the Bradley Prize, the 12th Hoover Fellow to be so honored. Peter, congratulations, and tell us what the Bradley Prize is. Well, thanks very much, Bill. Good to be with you. Um, The Bradley Prize is an annual prize um, given out by the Bradley Foundation, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it's intended to honor, um, I hesitate to say lifetime, being such a young man, but uh, long-term contribution to the defense of freedom, to the defense of constitutional democracy in America, to the defense of a strong America at home and abroad. I think it's the joke in the Oscars, the Irving Thalberg Award, that it's yes. celebrities do not want that. Why? <laughs> it's usually given to a dying celebrity. <laughs> exactly. So this is very much not an Irving Thalberg Award. No, you're not going anywhere soon. Uh, let's focus today on Israel, where you just came back from. How many, how many days were you over there? I was in Israel uh, 12 days, and I landed... About 30, landed back in the United States about 36 hours ago. And how many times a year do you typically go? I traveled to Israel quite a bit. Uh, typical year, and this has now been true for more than a decade, four or five times a year. Okay, and before we came on the air here, you told me a very funny story about the first time you went to Israel. Ah, yes. Um, first time I went to Israel was uh, about 10 days after I graduated from college, from Swarthmore College. And I went to uh, Israel in my capacity, um, at the time I was very proud of it, my capacity as a tennis coach. And I, uh, my first job after college, first job in Israel, was teaching tennis on a kibbutz. The traditional path for a conservative <laughs> scholar. <laughs> it, it, exactly. And, and all those who are curious about such a path, I urge them to look me up. I'll tell them all about it. And what was your first impression when you went to Israel? What, what did you expect going in and what surprised you? This was a long time ago, my first trip. But I, uh, even after all of my visits to Israel, I have something like this experience upon, upon arriving. You know, here in the United States, and it's been true for a long time, we read a great deal about um, violence in Israel, terrorism in Israel, uh, the enemies that surround Israel. And yet, flying from the United States... 11 hour, 10 and a half to 11 hour flight from the East Coast. You arrive in Israel, and the first thing that strikes you is you're in a land of, live, of technicolor. Blue skies, usually, palm trees, busy people going about their business. That day to day living, generally and for the most part, proceeds without. Uh, I suppose in the shadow of it's true, but without the immediate presence of the violence, the threats, that um, is what we mainly read about in the United States. That's interesting, because I've always wondered if you live in a society like Israel, do you relax? For sure you relax. Uh, It can be um, paradoxical. Of course... um, there are periods uh, in Israel when it's impossible to relax. Israel was, was born 
amidst blood and violence in 1948 as the British were leaving um, Palestine behind them, uh, evacuating. Uh, on the, the eve, Israel declared its independence. Next day, five, Israel, five Arab armies descended upon the, uh, the new Jewish state with the intention of destroying it. Couldn't relax very much then. Uh, during the first intifada, the uprisings of 1987, the second uh, terrible suicide bombing uprisings uh, in Israel, Palestinian protests, uh, 2001 to 2004, was harder to relax. Um, and yet, and yet, people learn to get 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 on with their lives. On the one hand, every young man and every young woman, or most young men and most young women. Uh, serve in the uh, in the army. So every family has a son or daughter, a brother, or sister, mother or father, in the army. So that the threat is all around. At the same time, um, people pursue careers. People fall in love. People get married. People fall out of love. People have great professional and personal dreams. Sometimes the dreams are realized. Sometimes the dreams are shattered. Um, it's, a, it's a living, effervescent, um, uh, extremely uh, variegated society. And I urge you to come visit and all of your listeners to come visit. Very good. Uh, let's talk about a column that you wrote back in June, Peter. I'm going to read you a passage from this. and. Since you've just made the visit over there, let's see if you'd like to update these thoughts. Here's what you wrote. This ran in Real Clear Politics on June the 27th. The headline, Why Mideast Peace Ambitions Must Be Dialed Back. <clears throat> and you wrote, quote, Trump, President Trump, ought to truly break with his predecessors by abandoning the ambition to achieve a final and comprehensive peace. But he should not abandon the Israelis and the Palestinians if, in contrast to Presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, he were to pursue a partial and incomplete deal, he would considerably increase the prospects of advancing the interest of both Israelis and Palestinians while restoring American prestige and influence in the region. Peter, that sounds like you were saying that when it comes to the Middle East, less is more. Yes, uh, certainly in this particular context, um, that is the pursuit of peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the Palestinians who live in the West Bank, a complexity there because uh, there are another approximately two million Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip. Uh, there, I do believe less is more. Um, uh, what I what I wrote in uh, June seems to me still true today, um, and the the thought, the thinking that lies behind it, goes something like this. Bill Clinton um, hoped that he could resolve the long-standing conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians concerning West Bank and Gaza Strip. These were territories that Israel seized uh, Gaza Strip from Egypt and the West Bank from, um, from Jordan in a defensive war, 1967. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, failed, to, uh, failed to bring uh, Yasser Arafat then the uh, chairman of the, of the Palestinian Authority, and uh, uh, Ehud Barak, then Prime Minister of Israel, together. George W. Bush 
believed that he that his administration might be able to reach a final peace settlement. His Secretary of State, our colleague Condoleezza Rice, in 2007, um, convened a conference in, at Annapolis and hoped that she could, hoped that the United States could uh, bring about a final settlement of the issue. Didn't succeed. Barack Obama's administration made several efforts with uh, one led by um, uh, former Senator George Mitchell, uh, Hillary Clinton was involved, John Kerry worked assiduously when he was Secretary of State to achieve an agreement. He failed. The Obama administration failed. There's a lesson to be learned there, although the Bush administration did not effectively learn from the failure of the Clinton administration, and the Obama administration did not effectively learn from the failures of the Bush administration and the Clinton administration. What's to be learned? The Israelis, in order to uh, achieve a final settlement, the Israelis would have to make very painful concessions. In order to reach a final uh, peace settlement with the Israelis, the Palestinians would have to make very painful concessions. It's far from clear that either side's leader has the political capital to make the painful concessions that would meet the minimum, de the minimum demands of the other side. But I also don't want to suggest a false equivalence here. Uh, the Israelis made very generous offers in 2000, uh, again in 2008, which the Palestinian leadership um, uh, rejected. They didn't even accept these uh, offers, one made by, um, by Prime Minister Ehud Barak at Camp David in 2000, one made by Ehud Olmert um, in Israel directly to Abbas. They didn't even accept these offers, in my judgment, rather generous offers, as the basis for future uh, negotiation. They just rejected them. I learned from this that uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians, not, neither the Israelis or the Palestinians, are in a position to, um, uh, to provide the other adequate assurances and make the necessary compromises. That does not lead me to a position of despair. It seems to me if we stop pressing them to make impossible concessions, we might be able to encourage both sides to make steps that will um, create situation that increases the possibility of peace, peace and mutu of mutual accommodation and then peace in the longer term. All right, so enter into this equation one Jared Kushner. And I'd like to ask you your thoughts about Mr. Kushner, but first let's talk a bit about his father-in-law, Donald Trump. <laughs> You've talked to people in Israel. Donald Trump obviously comes up in the conversation. We talk a lot about Trump from an American perspective on this podcast, but let's talk about Trump from the Israeli perspective. The good people of Israel look at Donald Trump, and what do they see? Well, as I said earlier, the, the people of Israel are a variegated people. Uh, different groups see different things. But overall, I think it is fair to generalize and say they're baffled. <laughs> and, and why not? Many Americans are baffled are by baffled Donald by Trump. Are they baffled by Trump, Peter, or are they baffled by the system that delivered Donald Trump, or are they baffled by all of it? They're, they're sophisticated enough to be baffled by both. Um, 
plenty of Israelis, especially the intellectual elite, uh, actually are, are horrified by Trump. Israelis, Israel's intellectual elite, like our intellectual elite, leans left, uh, and they share our, our progressive elite sensibilities. So they are appalled by Trump, and uh, they're quite angry with the system that, uh, that produced Trump. Um, but going beyond the, uh, the intellectual, the progressive elite uh, in Israel, there are plenty of Israeli voters who do recognize that, is, that, um, that Donald Trump is, uh, is a friend of Israel. It's not just that his pronouncements have been almost uniformly friendly. Uh, it's not just that Donald Trump uh, actually is the first American president to have a son-in-law who's Jewish, Orthodox Jewish, a daughter who's an Orthodox Jew. Mm -hmm. He's the first American president to have three Jewish grandchildren. It's not just that. It's also, I believe it was, uh, um, if it was not Trump's first uh, trip abroad as president, in his first trip to the Middle East, he flew first to Saudi Arabia right. and then to Israel. Correct. In contrast to President Obama, who in his first trip to the Middle East flew to Saudi Arabia and then bypassed it, bypassed Israel. This sent the message to the Israelis that uh, Donald Trump does not see in some kind of invidious distinction between uh, America's friendship toward Saudi Arabia and, and, and America's friendship toward Israel. More than that, I believe, I believe that um, Trump's, President Trump's Air Force One flight from Riyadh to Tel Aviv, Israel, from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia to Tel Aviv, Israel, was the first official flight ever right. from Riyadh to, uh, Riyadh to Tel Aviv. Moreover, Trump had a, uh, not only had a good visit in Saudi Arabia, he had an excellent visit uh, in Israel. So on the one hand, I think it's fair to generalize and say a significant number of Israeli voters, if not a majority, are at minimum quite baffled both, as you, put, as you point, as you distinguish, Bill, by the system that produced Trump and Donald Trump himself. Uh, on the other hand, they, um, they see that uh, Trump seems to be on Israel's side and uh, takes Israel's um, challenges seriously and they're pleased by that. What is the status of the embassy? Ah. Um, Big Trump promise for the campaign to move, uh, it, move it uh, to Jerusalem. Yes, and you know, uh, right, and, um, and administration after administration mm -hmm. has promised to move the, uh, the American embassy, which now is in Tel Aviv, which is, we should say, has come to be the cultural and commercial capital of Israel, has promised to move the embassy to Israel's capital city, which is Jerusalem. No administration has does, done it. Promi uh, Trump promised emphatically, and he hasn't yet done it. Um, and it seems moving the embassy has fallen on his list of priorities, has dropped. Um, my sense of it is that many Israelis understand this matter in the way that many of Trump's supporters in the United States understand many of Trump's promises, which uh, have come and gone, which he has not acted on, which he has ignored or failed to successfully act on. That is, they don't take these promises literally, but they do take them as an expression of 
his goodwill, an expression of where he stands on the issue, an expression of general sympathy for, um, uh, for, for the people in question. Moreover, there's a, there's a complexity there. Um, of course, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, demands that the American embassy move, be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem's capital. He's always insisted on this. On the other hand, Bibi, a nickname by which virtually all Israelis refer to the Prime Minister, um, uh, at the same time, it seems that Bibi appreciates that just now moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to, um, to Jerusalem will create some major political headaches for him. What sorts of political headaches? Not internally, but the indications are that uh, relations between Israel and uh, leading Arab, Sunni Arab powers, particularly Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, um, Israel's had a peace treaty with uh, Egypt for uh, more than three decades, that these relationships, um, which are uh, they're, um, the warming or the intensification of the relationships is driven by the common threat that the Sunni Arab powers in Israel see in Iran, that these um, would have become good working relations would, um, would be hampered by controversy created in the region by the American moving of the, by America's moving the embassy. So it seems as if um, Bibi might have calculated that it's best for him to offer some ob oblig obligatory regret that President Trump has not acted on this promise and then move on. Therefore, never, um, uh, never uh, taking back his insistence that the American embassy belongs in uh, Jerusalem mm -hmm. while not making a major political issue out of this which would hurt both his ally, the President of the United States, and his sort of under-the-radar uh, good relations with Saudi Arabia, Arab Emirates. Okay, let's uh, spend a couple minutes on the first son-in-law, Mr. Kushner. Uh, you mentioned he is an Orthodox Jew. Um, if you were to be an optimist or a pessimist about this, the glass half-full says he is of the Jewish faith. The glass half-full says that the Kushner family knows Prime Minister Netanyahu personally. I think the Prime Minister has slept at literally in Jared Kushner's bed at the family's home in New Jersey. So there is a long-standing tie. Jared Kushner has visited Auschwitz and visited Israel. It's a personal issue for him, so that's the positive side. The negative side would be what? He's not a diplomat. He's a financial person. He's not schooled in Middle East diplomacy. Should he be trusted with this? So what is your take on this? Um, I'd add to that, uh, he's not only, not only is he not a, um, trained as a diplomat, he doesn't have any apparent uh, expertise in the political, ethnic, sectarian, religious, and security issues of the region. Um, so uh, allow me to offer a... Um, somewhat positive and somewhat charitable interpretation. Kushner and Jason Greenblatt, who is um, his partner, Greenblatt, I believe, is, uh, is, a, 
is named Special Envoy to the Middle East. Kirshner's in charge of it in the White House. Um, and Greenblatt was personal lawyer to uh, Trump, also not particularly expert on the, uh, on, on the Middle East. The, uh, the more favorable interpretation is that President Trump wants people who are uh, both whom he trusts and are favor favorably disposed to Israel, who can go to Israel, listen sympathetically to the Israeli position, but also listen to the listen to the Palestinian position. Greenblatt and Kushner have traveled to Ramallah, the ca capital of the Palestinian Authority, probably not more than a uh, five to six mile drive from uh, from Jerusalem. Um, that uh, that he's not going to um, push hard on them. That this will not be a full scale all court press. That uh, their lack of expertise means that they have to devote a, consi a considerable amount of time learning. So it, it, to me, it seems that um, President Trump actually may be prepared to embrace, in contrast to his predecessors, a, uh, a less is more approach. Now, I recognize that that contradicts a statement that he gave to uh, the Wall Street Journal last year, shortly after he was elected president, in which he called, um, in which he said, yeah, he wanted a deal between the Israeli and Palestinians, and he said, I'm a deal maker, and that's the ultimate deal. Yeah, it'll be the greatest deal, the beautiful deal. Uh, yeah, the greatest deal of all time. Huge deal, very huge deal, tremendously huge deal. Yeah, he's, he, he, he said that. But again, um, with Trump, I found uh, very valuable an observation that the uh, journalist Selena Zito made. Um, either late in the campaign or after Trump's victory. And she said the following. She said that um, Trump's critics take him literally, every promise literally, a 30-foot wall, 1,500 miles, Mexican-American border, but they don't take him seriously. Whereas Trump's supporters take him seriously, but they don't take him literally. Right. Um, I, I think that actually in trying to understand uh, Trump, it's probably better uh, to follow the approach of his supporters. Take him seriously, but not, but don't take him literally in these matters. So although he promised a big deal, his actual actions suggest to me greater tentativeness, and I think greater tentativeness is the sounder approach. So Peter, give me an idea of how you would benchmark success here when it comes mm. to diplomacy when it comes to trying to move the ball forward in, the, in this part of the world. Just give me a few standards that you would hold here. Sure, that's fair. So uh, for the moment, um, I suppose we're, going, we're restricting ourselves to uh, yeah. the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Right. Because what, of course... What I'm asking here is you know, presidents, all, they all want the Camp David moment. They yes, want, they want they, they want the big handshake, and they want they want Nobel prizes and so forth. But you're advocating that no, let's be realistic and let's let's you know aim for modest, achievable things. So that is the question: What is modest and achievable? The Israelis have proven that uh, their ability and willingness to compromise. One can quarrel uh, with Netanyahu in a variety of ways, but the Israelis have a history of either accepting internet international proposals for compromise or putting forward their own. The, 
uh, the Palestinians have a record of repudiating compromise offers out of hand. Therefore, the question for me is, is there anything we can do, the United States, Israel, um, sympathetic Arab neighbors, Europeans, the international community, to improve Palestinians' willingness to compromise? And I think the answer is yes. We can take steps to liberalize Palestinian society, to democratize Palestinian society, to modernize Palestinian society. What, what do I mean by that? Small, discreet, incremental steps. For example, we can do more to, um, uh, to, uh, to promote education among the Palestinians, especially among girls. We can uh, do more to train judges. We could do more to promote freedom of speech. We could, um, we could encourage the building of roads, schools, hospitals, factories. We could do more to uh, uh, encourage commerce between Israel and the Palestinians. None of this is easy. Um, all of this requires concentrated effort, but it is m easier and more attainable than is a final peace agreement. Moreover, any success in any of the areas I've just described will push the Palestinians in the direction of a freer, more democratic, more modern society, which is a society the political science and common sense both tells us it's going to be more inclined to, to compromise. It's going to be a society more inclined to think that its, um, its keenest interests and its highest ambitions are more likely to be satisfied through peace than through violence. Absolutely. Let's talk about the Prime Minister for a few minutes. Very good. How long has Bibi Netanyahu been in power? How many years? Well, uh, he, was, uh, he has been consecutive, consecutively in power. Uh, since 2009. Mm -hmm. However, he was also prim Prime Minister as a young man for, uh, elected in 1996 and served until 1999. So he's been in power now about eight years, plus uh, three years in the 90s as Prime Minister. Here's why I ask. The funny thing about American presidents, Peter, if they're lucky, they're re-elected. Under the Constitution, they have to leave office, they have to leave office after eight years. What tends to happen more times than not is the American president hits the wall after six years. <laughs> Politically, he becomes a spent force. He loses the Congress. He's repudiated in the second midterm election. And the last two years, he sort of dwindles down and out. So a six-year run. Yes. How do Israeli politics work? Do prime ministers historically have a certain sort of shelf life? Or do they, do they grow stale after a period of time? If you're Netanyahu and you've been on the stage now for quite some time, how do you stay fresh? Well, I can tell you this. Israelis who are not always um, enthusiastic supporters of the American Constitution, thinking it's a uh, very complicated and counterintuitive contraption, but in some respects it is. Um, nevertheless, uh, I found on this recent trip, have taken a considerable interest in the American limitation of the president to two elected terms. Um, 
So how do we view uh, how do we view BBS? Eight years is a long time in power. Right. Um, uh, we who are students of free societies uh, know that um, Lord Acton spoke wisely in the 19th century when he said that power corrupts. Um, I don't say that. Uh, I certainly am not uh, asserting that a prime minister Netanyahu is uh, corrupt. However, uh, as, as, as you know, um, he is embroiled in a series of cases that are being, uh, that are under review by the, um, uh, in Hebrew it's called the Yoetza Mishpati, the Yoetza uh, Mishpati is the adv uh, legal advisor to the government. Uh, these controversies include um, uh, his wife's alleged misuse of funds. About $100,000 worth of public funds. Exactly. For, um, uh, for uh, uh, luxury food in the prime minister's residence. Mm -hmm. A controversy concerning uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's conversations with the editor of a leading Israeli newspaper about the possibility of that newspaper hiring... Um, Netanyahu-friendly journalists in exchange for the prime minister um, making life more difficult for a um, free newspaper in Israel that is funded by a Netanyahu-friendly billionaire. Mm -hmm. um, and a big controversy about um, submarines that Israel purchased from, uh, from Germany. Uh, it has been alleged that uh, several of the Prime Minister's uh, close associates took bribes connected to Israel's purchase of those submarines. So if not the Prime Minister, people, people around him are the subject of great suspicion. The, uh, the legal advisor to the government uh, has already made a recommendation right. that Mrs. Netanyahu be subject to a hearing to consider a, an indictment. And uh, Israel expects in the coming weeks um, decisions about the, from the uh, legal advisor to the government as to whether uh, the prime minister should be uh, indicted on uh, one, some, or all of the uh, investigations now underway. This would be the question of what did the prime minister know and when did he know it? Yes, indeed. That's, that is one of the issues, for sure. Right. You also didn't mention his son who got into trouble in the past week. Yes. Posting a cartoon on Facebook, an anti-Semitic cartoon, I believe it was. Yes. Uh, um, anti-Semitic kind of cartoon. a strange story. But yes. Uh, anti-Semitic cartoon would be a, a, just a tad, tad too strong. Let's say a, um, uh, a, a cartoon which um, uh, employed anti-Semitic imagery to, uh, to mock George Soros, uh, the uh, left-wing multi-billionaire right. who, um, who funds organizations that, uh, in general, the right, uh, the right in Israel thinks are hostile to Israel. So yes, this created a great deal of uh, unwelcome controversy for the Netanyahu family. It also sparked a rather delicious quote from one Ehud Barak. Ah, please. Who said, quote, Is this what the kids hear at home? Is it genetics or a spontaneous mental illness? It doesn't matter. In any case, we should fund his psychiatrist instead of security guards and a driver. Yes. Uh, eh, uh, Ehud Barak, Barak of course, uh, was former prime minister of Israel. Uh, he defeated Netanyahu in 1999. And it, 
it is worth pointing out. He is Netanyahu's former commander in Israel's most elite uh, special operations unit, Sayeret Matkal. So his relationship to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu goes back more than three decades. So he's saying the prime minister is nuts. <laughs> he uh, he's yes he's saying that. But again, this this reflects a um, now many years of bitterness between the two men who who once knew each other very very well. But if you pulled the people of Israel, what would they say about their prime minister? Uh, about Netanyahu today? Yeah, if you ask them ah. basic questions about his character, his oh. personality, his style. Um, I think it's fair to say that in Israel today, uh, this was not quite your question, but uh, but I want to answer uh, another question first. There is a great deal of disdain for uh, Mrs. Netanyahu, the First Lady. Um, as for the Prime Minister, the country divides fairly sharply. Uh, the left loathes Netanyahu. Um, the right generally, or I should say, a fair amount of the center and the right generally believe that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu remains, with all of his flaws, remains the best person to, the best Israeli to lead Israel through these, these perilous times. Um, that said, you'll find many detractors of Netanyahu on the right as well, but nevertheless, they make the calculation that, is no serious rival in their minds to be leading uh, Israel right now. Right, and despite the scandal, the business of governing goes on, and yes. the business brings the Prime Minister to New York yes. this month to speak to the U.S. Yes. General Assembly, and he's expected to meet with President Trump at that time. What do you think the Prime Minister wants to talk about? That's an excellent question. Um, the, uh, when you say what he wants to talk about, you mean with Trump behind closed doors, well, with the world community? Two-part question. Okay, first of all, what's he going to tell the General Assembly? What's what's on his mind? Um, I honestly, uh, I have no inside information. Um, I can say that there are, I believe, that there are two issues that uh, especially preoccupy the Prime Minister. Uh, one is the West Bank, which he would prefer, the Palestinian conflict, which he would prefer not to talk about. And second, the tremendous th threat which the Islamic Republic of R Iran represents to all of American allies in the Middle East, to regional stability in the Middle East, and therefore to America's interests in the Middle East. Uh, I expect, I should have said this at the beginning, I expect that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu will, in front of the United Nations, actually tout his significant, <coughs> excuse me, successes in, uh, in foreign affairs and diplomacy. He'll be coming off a uh, multi-country trip to, uh, to South America, and I think he will boast about America, about Israel's um, considerably approved relations in that part of the world under his leadership in Africa, uh, with India, the world's largest democracy, and to uh, some extent with, uh, with China. I, I suspect actually this will be a significant part of his speech. Mm -hmm. Now the second part of the question, what do you think he and Trump are going to talk about? Um, Iran, right. Iran and the West Bank, um, uh, but especially uh, Iran. And I, 
I guess there's a, a third category that uh, links both of those, uh, the, threat of, uh, the threat of Islamic extremism, not only in the Middle East and around the world. Remember that um, Donald Trump's candidacy was built around several major issues. Immigration was one. Trade was another. Not all that far behind was his insistence on the seriousness of the threat of Islamic extremism uh, and the failure of President Obama uh, to take it seriously. In fact, the failure of Obama to ever use the term, the terms Islamic extremism. Um, Israel has been, ever since it's, it's, it came into existence, on the front lines of the struggle against uh, terrorism in the Middle East and since the rise of Islamic extremism, especially in the 90s and 2000s, on that front line as well. So, uh, and Netanyahu has been the forefront of the effort to uh, wake up the world to the threat. Um, don't forget that um, his, bro his older brother, Jonathan Netanyahu, was killed in 1976 in a daring Israeli uh, effort, successful effort, to rescue hostages that had uh, been taken by Palestinians and flown to Uganda. So uh, Netanyahu has been, uh, has been concentrating on this issue ever since, uh, since he was a young man. So I suspect those three issues, not the embassy, uh, I suspect that won't, be get, won't pay much attention to it, but behind closed doors, uh, Bibi will want to speak especially about Iran and uh, the general threat of Islamic extremism. Uh, Trump may well push, uh, may pose some questions about the West Bank. Very good. David Ben-Gurion. Yes. Once said, quote, in order to be a realist, you have to believe in miracles. <laughs> so let's make this the exit question. What is it to be a realist right now in Israel? You're an Israeli citizen, average Israeli citizen you come across. What is a realistic take on their condition right now? You know, uh, especially over the last let's say since the end of the Second Intifada in 2004, uh, it's very tempting to use the trite line, best of times, worst of times. Why? Best of times. In many respects, Israel is an extraordinarily flourishing country. Uh, every, lots of people know of Israel as startup nation. I believe that um, only the United States has more companies registered on NASDAQ than, uh, than Israel. Of course, we are a country of approximately 325 million, and Israel is a country of approximately 9 million people. There's a reason, by the way, United flies direct from San Francisco to Israel. Yes, and, uh, and by the way, they fly, they fly direct nonstop uh, seven, seven times a week, and El Al, Israel's uh, carrier, has gotten into that market as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a, there's a reason. So uh, Israel's high-tech industry is flourishing. Uh, Tel Aviv is an extraordinarily lively city, not just high-tech, culture, the arts, fascinating people. Um, Israel's a, an exciting, thrilling, thrilling place to be. At the same time, uh, Israelis know, how could they not, that they live in an extraordinarily dangerous neighborhood. 
We haven't said anything yet about uh, about Syria, but we should. One can um, one can visit uh, the Golan Heights, territory that's been in Israel's hands since 1967 war se ceased uh, seized from Syria. Israel applied Israeli law to the Golan Heights in uh, 1981, and one can see action in the Syrian civil war. The the Syrian civil war is an extraordinary humanitarian catastrophe that in the United States we pay almost no attention to. Uh, the Israelis do it right on their border. Think about it this way. Uh, in all of Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian-Arab conflicts over the last 100 years, approximately 100,000 Arabs have died. In the last six years in Syria, more than half a million Arabs have died. In, in 1948, six or seven hundred thousand Palestinians were displaced from their home in the course of what the Israelis refer to as the War of Independence. In Syria over the last six years, approximately 12 million Syrians have been driven from their home. Five million of those have been forced, uh, forced out of the country. This is tremendously destabilizing. And by the way, Lebanon, Lebanon has absorbed probably in excess in one and a half of one and a half million Syrian refugees in a country of four million. Jordan, a country of six and a half million, has absorbed another million and a half Syrian refugees. The Syrian refugee crisis is not only destabilizing in Europe, it's destabilizing in the area. So the Israel, in addition, Israel faces something like 150,000 rockets and missiles in Hezbollah's possession in southern Israel. Hamas in the Gaza Strip on Israel's border has <coughs> rearmed and has built attack terror tunnels under the ground. Israel faces Iran, which under the um, deeply misguided uh, agreement that the, the United, that I should say President Obama entered into with Iran allows Iran to continue to make progress toward a nuclear weapon, uh, faces a dangerous Iran. So the Israelis are, in one sense, flourishing as never before, and in another respect, live in an environment, a geopolitical environment, that is as dangerous as it's ever been. And so in the long arc of your time visiting Israel, Peter, which must be not to date you 35 years, just to throw out a random number, but it's probably been about that long. Yes, indeed. Israel. Yes. Your confidence in what's going on, are you optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? Um, I, I'm optimistic. Over the course of uh, the time that I've been traveling to Israel, remember, Israel is a, a very, very young country. comes into existence in harsh, difficult circumstances. I've watched Israel become uh, a country that is actually more liberal, more democratic, more prosperous, um, and uh, develop the most uh, powerful conventional army uh, in the world. Uh, sorry, um, of course, not in the world, that's us, but in the, um, in the region, and become better integrated into the international uh, community. Um, 
you know, uh, uh, we know in politics and ge geopolitics, trends don't guarantee, don't come with a guarantee that they will uh, continue. Israel will continue to have to um, defend itself vigorously. Israel will continue to have to improve its educational system to educate its citizens for the um, myriad challenges it, it faces. But I must say that I am, uh, I am quite, quite hopeful. Good. Peter Berkowitz, thanks for stopping by today. Go home and get some rest. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best of Peter Berkowitz and his Hoover <laughs> colleagues to you every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst. That's at H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T, at Hooverinst. Peter Berkowitz is also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at BerkowitzPeter. You spell that at B-E-R-K-O-T-W-I-T-Z-P-E-T-E-R, at BerkowitzPeter. You'll find a compilation of his good work at PeterBerkowitz.com. Anything else you'd like to plug while I've got you here? Sounds good to me as is. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows to your inbox every business day. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.